Happy Monday, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of the Musketeer Report podcast. Paul Fritschner, Rick Broring with you, breaking down last week's win over the Butler Bulldogs up in Indianapolis. Rick, I was there and on Instagram, I called it Cintas Center West just because it feels like every year the crowd for Xavier gets bigger and bigger and bigger at Butler. And I think with the way that Butler's program is kind of trending right now with Butler not really being what they were in the early 2010s, the noise level, I'm not saying the fan attendance number was 50-50 Xavier and Butler, but the noise level easily was. And it was a really fun environment, especially if you were a Xavier fan there. Um, and the other thing, too, that I'll say to start this off is that I know that, you know, Xavier fans love to hate on Hinkle Fieldhouse and all that. And, uh, you know, with the clock and the water and everything. I get it. I, I understand that. But to me, at least. The game at Hinkle is always one of the most fun games of the year because of that crowd dynamic and going back and forth. And there was like a four minute segment in the second half where both teams were making shots back and forth. And Butler was trying to make a run to get back into the game. And those are the kinds of situations why I love college basketball. It was a really fun night, but Butler in the end never really had enough firepower. Felt like Butler played a good game to their standards and Xavier still blew them out. Rick, how did you kind of read Friday night and what was your overall impression of the game? Yeah, that game has become a fun one for Xavier fans. It's been like that ever since these two really started playing regularly. And the thing that you alluded to is Butler has just gotten worse and worse over that time. So it's become more and more fun for Xavier fans to make that trip and scream at the top of their lungs and kind of take over Hinkle. As far as Hinkle goes as a barn, it's a dump. I don't understand the appeal that everybody else thinks about it. I think it's trash, but... Yeah, I, I get why people like going up there from a Xavier perspective and cheering. It, it is funny. I mean, every time you watch that game on TV now at Hinkle, all you hear is Let's Go X. Like the entire game, it feels like you just hear Let's Go X. And <laughs> that dynamic doesn't exist at Centos Center. Like it's not vice versa. Butler fans don't come down and take over Centos Center. So, yeah, that, that's kind of yeah. weird how that works, you know? Yeah, my my girlfriend went with me and she hadn't been to Hinkle for a game before. And she was asking me about it. And I said, well, there's going to be a lot of Xavier fans there. And she goes, okay. I could tell she was kind of like, ah, you know, there'll be a handful here and there. I was like, no, no, no. Like it's going to be maybe half and half Xavier and Butler. And she goes, even up here, like selling tickets, buying tickets. I go, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be pretty split. And I don't know how it always works out, but it's, it always feels like all the Xavier fans too are always in the same spot between 304 and 306, which obviously helps, but yeah, it was it was a great time. And uh, I, I think digging into the game a little bit, it was never really it was never really close. Like even when it came out of halftime and Butler went on a little run and you're thinking, OK, is Xavier going to do the same thing like Villanova? And in fact, Xavier put out a, a video after the game, um, you know, their, their little cinematic uh, hype video or, or their recap video from the game. And they had a halftime clip of somebody and I couldn't tell who was saying it, but they said, hey, look, we were up by about the same amount against Villanova and we came out and blew that game in the second half. And, you know, they, they were thinking about it. They were monitoring it. Xavier did kind of struggle a little bit out of the second half. Uh, Travis Steele calls a timeout, gets things settled, and then Xavier wins by double digits. Outside of that one little four-minute war to start the second half, Rick, it never really felt close. Yeah, and, and they never let it get inside of six points. Like, you know, I saw some people that were complaining about the defense of the second half and how that's like an indication that Xavier isn't good and they're going to continue to struggle. It's like if you watched a conference Big East game in which Xavier went into their opponent's gym, a team that's become their rival, was leading by almost 10 or more the entire game. It was never really in question. The closest it ever got was within six and they end up winning by 15 points. You have nothing to complain about. If you can't enjoy watching that game in which they played very well, you have issues and you really don't like watching Xavier play basketball. And you probably just need to admit that to yourself. Now, did they trade baskets too much in the second half? Yeah, of course, obviously. But that's part of what happens when you get an early double digit lead and you have to hang on to it. That's how sports work. That's how the Big East Conference works. You don't just get to beat people by 25. Occasionally it may happen. <laughs> But that's not the the norm. It, it, they're usually going to make a comeback. So I thought Xavier handled that really well. It was a good turnaround from the second half of the Villanova game. Obviously, Butler isn't the same type of team Villanova is. But I still thought Xavier showed well. Where I think you have to start with this game, though, in terms of what stood out, it's Adam Kunkel's performance. I mean, he goes for 25 points. He was 8-12 from the field, 4-8 of eight from three-point range. 
only played 26 minutes. So he scored those 25 points in 26 minutes and he had zero turnovers while playing this way, which for Adam Kunkel, I think is a big deal because the way that he likes to play and, and kind of needs to play to get his points like this, you got to give him some leash. You got to let him play with a little freedom and do his thing a little bit. And yeah, there were a couple shots early on where you're going, ah, I don't know about that shot selection <laughs> there, Adam, but that's why you have to give him that freedom because this is what he is capable of doing. He kind of needs that. Travis has said that multiple times. He needs to be able to take a couple bad shots. He needs to have the ball in his hands a little bit to, to get the feel for it and get going. And when he does, he's capable of, playing the way he did in this game. It's something that he thrives on having that extra freedom. Yeah. So Adam goes out there and he finishes with 25 points. He's the game's leading score, eight of 12 from the field, four of eight from the three point line, and then five of six from the free throw line. Xavier was 23 of 27 from the free throw line in the game. And they shot 25 of those 27 free throws in the second half. So that that's a huge number. Um, but yeah, to your point about Adam, I, I just felt like, he was comfortable. He was getting open. And when he was open, he, he was getting open in creative ways that allowed him to get into a shot in a free kind of flow in the offense. He wasn't forcing anything and being able to be comfortable and lean into those shots allows you to go out there and shoot 50 percent from the three point line, which in any game is going to be huge. Yeah, I think the other thing about Adam's performance is a lot of people label him a shooter and. He, he is. He shot the ball well on this one, but you could see in this game, he was killing closeouts when they came flying hard out at him. I mean, he'd give it a ball fake or a head fake and he'd go right around them. He's really good in that mid range with the pull up, which we saw in this one. But he's just he's always been more of a playmaker than he is a shooter. And you saw that in this game again. He kind of has that J.P. McCure game to him a little bit where everyone sees a small white guy who's going to shoot threes and they label him a shooter and they really fly out hard at him when closing out him on the perimeter. But he's capable of doing much more than that and making plays off the bounce. And, and this was another game where he showed that ability. The other thing that I think is important about Adam this year compared to last year is last year at times he was a liability defensively. He did not offer much in that way. And in fact, he hurt them at times this year. I mean, he'll get beat occasionally, obviously. And there are some physical limitations there, but he's not getting abused by any shots. The imagination he's holding up pretty well on the defensive end. He's usually in the right spot and the extra strength that he had in the offseason has certainly helped him hold his own when he's matching up for sure. And, and before we get into the rest of this team individually, I think since you mentioned it, it's a good point to bring up. Adam didn't have any turnovers. And as a whole, Xavier only had six turnovers as a team. That was their season low. Butler only had six turnovers too, but Butler only scores two points off of Xavier's six turnovers. Xavier scores 10 off of Butler's six. And just keeping the turnovers to a minimum, being efficient, I, I just thought that that was where Xavier, if you're looking at something that you can take out of this game, out of a team perspective, looking at one box score stat, six turnovers in a game like that is a really, really good number. Well, especially coming out of the long layoff, right? We're all, we're all talking about like how this how's this team going to look? We saw some of the sloppiness that resulted from last year's layoffs. But I think what this showed you is there's a big difference between having a layoff where you have to isolate and you don't get to practice and there are just some really limited individual workouts and you're exercising in your dorm room versus being able to practice normally and still have a somewhat normal life, despite not being able to play games because other teams are shut down for COVID. That made a big difference because Xavier looked pretty sharp in this game. The shooting was good. They're 55% from the field, 10 of 22 from the three point line. Yeah. A lot of that had to do with Adam Kunkel, but aside from Kunkel, it was everyone else just kind of hit like one or two threes. There, there were several different guys who made a three pointer in this game. The free throws were really good. Like you talked about, and the turnovers are probably the best example of that because this is a team that has had issues with turning the ball over throughout this season. And quite honestly, in the second half, if that came back and they started throwing the ball around and got sloppy, this could have been a very different game. It could have been a lot more like the Villanova game because Butler was on a roll. They played certainly one of their best halves of the season defensively and Xavier, I mean, offensively and Xavier got a little lax defensively. So if you would have coupled all that with some turnovers there in the second half, it could have been a different ball game. So I, I thought that was really important. And yeah, Xavier didn't play great defensively in the second half. In fact, they were pretty bad, but they did put two halves together in terms of 
focus and execution and all of that stuff. It's it's one thing to play bad defense when you're in a rut and you can't get out of it and the other team is making a run. It's another thing to be trading baskets when you've got basically a 10-point lead the entire half, and that's more what Xavier was doing in this case. Xavier in this game had eight scores. They had four in double figures, and they had six players hit a three. Four players hit just one three, Paul, Colby, Nate and Zach Fremantle and Zach Fremantle, I think individually is somebody we should probably start off with here after Adam Kunkel Uh, Fremantle in this game. He has one, three scores, 10 points. He's four of eight from the field did hit a free throw, um, had a couple of rebounds, but, uh, you know, one assist defensively, you know, I thought Xavier, they, as a team, Xavier gives up 31 points in the first half, 41 in the second half, uh, you know, defensively for Zach, did you see anything that inspired any confidence in this game, Rick? Well, no. What you what you saw is that other teams are fully aware of where Xavier's weak link is at defense. They know exactly how much trouble Zach has been having on that end of the court. Because if I went back and and tried to chart this after the game, and Xavier's staff may have slightly different opinions on who's responsible for things and. I'm not sure if I'm confident enough to say exactly who was at fault on every play. And sometimes someone's not always at fault. Sometimes you're in pretty good position. Guys are doing the right thing and the offense makes a great play, right? So I'm not saying that he screwed up this many times or that he gave up points on all these possessions, but I went back to try to chart after the game, how many possessions was he directly involved with that Butler scored on, right? Meaning the action was run right at him. It was his man that was scoring or they're running a ball screen involving him and they got a bucket out of it. 14 out of, I think it was 34 possessions that Butler scored on. 14 of those 34 possessions directly involved Zach Freeman. So again, whether he's screwing up on all those or not, which he's he's not, to be clear, several of them he did, but not all of them. What it tells you is the other team is clearly attacking him. They are going after him and making it a point to try to score when he's in the game by utilizing him in actions. And there's a reason for that because he has not been playing very good defense at all. And he's struggling to handle these things. And the ball screen stuff is part of it, certainly, but I don't think it's necessarily how Xavier is defending the ball screens in terms of their strategy or their schematics. I think it has more to do with how he's reacting and how he's guarding certain situations. I think the strategy is mostly right. The drop coverages have made them a better team when they use Zach and Jack and a drop coverage on ball screens. I think that is the right answer. They've just got to be able to execute that better more often. And, and right now Zach is really struggling. And and I, I think offensively he's getting better. You saw some of that in the first half. He scored all 10 of his points in the first half, but it's not to the point where it's going to outweigh what he's given up on the defensive end. So that's just something that they're going to have to figure out. We can maybe talk more about, how you go about trying to hide him or put him in better positions too, if you want. Yeah. Why not? Do you have any suggestions there, Rick? Uh, Well, I think a lot of people are pointing to the obvious, which is play more zone. And I I do think that would help Zach some, but this isn't going to be a zone team all the time. And Travis clearly isn't going to play that way permanently. And I don't think that's the right answer either. Like you can't just run out in the big East and play against Villanova and play a zone all game against Villanova, right? (laughs) They're going to shoot 45 threes against you. And you're probably going to lose that battle. I think it's better in spurts. Like Travis has been trying to use it. I think you could probably use it a little bit more often, but there's also an aspect of this of like, you want your guys to get better at your base defense and the defense you want to play that you think makes you your best. So as much as I do think zone will help some, I don't think it's probably going to be the long-term answer and something they're going to go with. The one thing that I would tell Zach right now, go foul somebody. You, You have two options. You either keep letting your guys score and offering zero resistance. You come sit with us or you find a way to keep him from scoring. And that may include knocking him on his ass. I think you just have to tell him that there's only been, Two games, I believe. Let me look this up to be sure. There's been, it's been two or three games that Zach Fremantle has played in this year since he's returned where he has picked up three or more fouls. I'm looking at it right now. He had three fouls against Butler. He had five fouls against UC. Other than that, he hasn't had more than two fouls in a game this year. He didn't commit a foul against Villanova. He didn't commit a foul against Moorhead State. He committed just one foul against Ball State and against Oklahoma State. That's not enough. This was a guy that used to have some trouble staying out of foul trouble early in his career. 
that's not enough for him. If teams are going at him that often, he's playing a position in the paint where it's supposed to be physical. He needs to be fouling more. That tells me he's not trying hard enough if he's not picking up any fouls down low. I would tell him to go foul someone. Change the mindset here because right now he's offering zero resistance. He is way too soft inside and teams are scoring on him at will. He's giving up ground like crazy. I would challenge his pride. Talk about the New Jersey toughness stuff that everyone likes to talk about when they talk about Zach Fremantle and challenge him with that. Say, you either stop them from scoring by any means necessary or you come out and you sit next to us because what you're doing right now just isn't working. And again, is that like some sophisticated plan that's going to change around Zach's season? No, of course not. But right now, there's not much that's working. And I think the biggest thing you need to get out of him is just some type of resistance and some type of toughness on that end of the court. I remember back in like fifth grade, I was playing CYO basketball and there was some kid on the other team that was just completely, completely weak in the paint. Didn't want anything to do with, I mean, you know, CYO basketball, right? Nobody wants anything to do in the paint. And this poor kid's mom is sitting in the crowd and she's one of those CYO moms that's involved in every single play. And I'll never forget it. She shouts out. So the whole gym goes silent and she looks at this kid and she yells over everybody else. I forget his name. He goes, hey, you got five fouls. God gave you five fouls. Go use them. This poor kid turns around, eyes bigger than anything. And he goes, well, okay, okay, mom. And he just comes out swinging in the second half. I'm like, all right, all right. I've never forgotten that. So maybe there. Shout out to God refing that game and allowing him the five <laughs> fouls. That was, that was nice of our Lord and Savior. Yeah. So. I, I think that is a good point, though, Rick. I think that just like you said, changing maybe a little bit of the mentality, the toughness and, and going after guys. And maybe like if you're looking at Butler and you're saying, OK, that's exposing what teams are going to want to consistently do against Zach, then you're going to have to change that up. And it can't start any faster than what it's going to have to start with on Wednesday against the number 14 team in the country in Villanova, who you just played a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, and I'm, I'll be fascinated to see what. Travis does defensively against Villanova because you know what Villanova is going to come at you and do, right? I mean, we saw what worked for them in the, in the second half. They're going to come flying off of ball screens downhill with their guards. They're going to try to attack Jack or Zach, who's ever the big man is dropping on that coverage. And the guards are going to go right at him and try to score on them. And it's going to be a lot of the guards getting to two feet in the paint and trying to post up as well, because they had a lot of success with that in the second half. So we'll see how Xavier combats that. I don't know if the answer can just be, well, Zach has to play better, right? There might need to be something strategy-wise that you change there to give them a different look. So we'll see what Xavier combats that with. Somebody we definitely need to talk about from Butler is Jerome Hunter, who had his best game of the season so far. Hunter goes out, scores in double figures, 12 points, four or six from the field, had a couple of threes, back-to-back threes, and uh, went out there, and he had a great game. Obviously, the transfer from Indiana, so... Uh, like for Jerome, it's nice to see him go out there and have a game like this and, and inspire a little confidence when you bring him in to be a shooter, play some defense. And he hasn't been able to really do that at all in any kind of capacity to any point in the season. And then goes out there and does that in some spurts on Friday night. Yeah, I think it was a good game for him from a confidence standpoint because he finally made some shots. And that's been something he's been struggling with. He played really well in the Moorhead State game. He had made the two threes against Central Michigan, but other than that, this year, he's really struggled shooting the basketball. I didn't think he played as well as everyone else did. For one, the two threes that he shot, or the two threes that he made, neither one of them were good shots, right? Like the one came at the end of the shot clock where he had to kind of force it up, and fortunately it went in. And then the other one was, I guess you could consider it a good shot. There, He basically got the center switched on to him and realized that, he wasn't going to be able to guard him. So he gave him one hard dribble, like he was going to drive past him and then just set up for the three and had plenty of space and got it off. So whatever, I'm okay with that since he made it, but like, he's a guy that hasn't been shooting well enough for him to really be shooting threes off the dribble, in my opinion, and trying to create his own looks from out there. And then the third three that he got, which was wide open off a kick out, of course, was the one that he couldn't put down. It was the best <laughs> shot he got all game. Um, I can't have Jerome Hunter playing 24 minutes and not grabbing a single rebound though. That's one thing like about this game where, yeah, it's nice to see him make some shots. My favorite shot that he made was actually the one where he drove and uh, kind of flipped it up awkwardly and it sat on the back of the iron and then rolled in. 
that was, I really liked this sort of him catching at the top of the key, either pump faking and driving or just ripping straight to the rim and straight line driving down the lane. I think that's been something that, that has worked for him. Well, he's been able to draw some fouls doing that or, or get to the rim and all the way and score. Again, I thought this was a good game for him from an offensive standpoint to build some confidence, but toughness wise, there's got to be a little more for me. Like it, his role on this team is to be a rebounder and defender for the most part, shoot the occasional three when you're open, but zero rebounds in 24 minutes just is not getting it done from what you're asking out of him and his role. So need a little bit more from him from that perspective. Uh, and then looking down the line, Rick, Paul Scruggs, uh, 16 points for Paul. And in what we think is his last game in Indianapolis, I remember tweeting that last year, uh, tweeting that about him playing his last game in Hinkle. And then everybody was responding with, well, you know, he could come back for another year. And you're thinking, oh, okay, well, does he come back for another year? Is he really going to do that? Is he really going to come back? Well, he did. Came yep. back for another year and uh, scored 16 points. And they were kind of a quiet 16 points, right? Like you look at the box score and you think, okay, he got up to 16, but it, it never really felt like he had to take over the game because Adam Kunkel did, right? So you're thinking to yourself, okay, well, Paul goes out there in front of his own crowd and and uh, scores 16 points, made all nine of his free throws, uh, but he was three for seven from the field with a three. How do you think Paul played in his, his swan song at Hinkle? Yeah, I thought he played pretty well, and he, he was a consistent factor in the game. He never tried to force the issue too much. The one thing I was a little bit worried there for a little, it was fun theater or drama to watch, but I was a little worried that he was getting caught up in the one-on-one matchup with Jaden Taylor, the freshman for Butler. There was a, a time or two where they went at each other, and a couple times where Jaden Taylor got the better of Paul on the defensive end and, and stopped him, and they were jawing back and forth. So I, I was... Again, a little worried at one point that Paul was going to get caught up in that and start trying to do too much where we see him at times doing that spin move, crab dribbling like he's he's a big man. And just it, that, that doesn't seem to work well for him when he starts turning his back to the defense and getting caught up in that things go haywire. It leads to turnovers for him. I thought he did a good job of he, he took the opportunities when they presented himself. He tried to be aggressive, but he didn't do too much of it. He didn't over dribble and look for his shot too often. The, the other thing that I thought he did really well, which was important in this game because Dwan Odom really struggled to stop Aaron Thompson, was Paul was the answer defensively against Aaron Thompson. They were able to, to slow him down a little bit more while Paul was in the game because Aaron Thompson got some confidence going in this game offensively, which not normally his game. He's more of a, a playmaker and setup man and defender, but uh, he got some drives going to the rim and started scoring a little bit. And fortunately, when it came down to it and some of the the more crucial moments Paul was able to, to lock him up and keep him out of the lane. And then a couple other guys that I think we should probably talk about a little bit here, Colby and Nate for one with Nate, he didn't have to take that many threes. In fact, he only took one and he made it, but with the way he's been shooting the basketball this year, it's been phenomenal. And we've seen the stats lately of how he's again, one of the best shooters in the country. And he doesn't really have that drop off. You and I were talking before the season. Okay. He was one of the best shooters in the country. Everybody tamper your expectations because you can't expect him to go out there and repeat that kind of a performance two years in a row. Like even if he just drops back to being above average, you're going to be really good in a good spot with him. But Oh, by the way, he is right back to where he was last year if not even a little better because the team is healthy and they're able to get him shots and they don't have to rely on him as much. I'm not saying he's not an important piece, but he only had to take one three on Friday night and he made it. He, they weren't relying on him to go out there and get the 25 points that Adam Kunkel scored. So for Nate to be able to have that weight, maybe lifted off his shoulders a little bit shooting wise to see Adam have that kind of a performance and Nate to continue shooting the way the basketball or to continue shooting the basketball the way he has as it's incredible. Well, that's a good point. And also you saw in this game that Nate doesn't have to necessarily shoot well or be a prolific scorer for him to have an impact on the game. Butler was paying a whole lot of attention to him. I thought they worried about Nate a little bit too much considering yeah, he's been Xavier's best shooter, but he's not their primary option on offense. And Xavier's pretty content. If you're going to really try to worry about Nate Johnson and keep the ball out of his hands, Xavier's content to play through other guys. Like they don't need to play through Nate Johnson as, as well as he's shot the ball all year. And I think that's what you saw in some of this Butler game. But in the NBA, they talk a lot about gravity 
you know, like Steph Curry has gravity for defenses, which means whenever you're running an action towards him or the ball's going his way, the defense is always really heavily shaded over towards his direction because they're worried about what he's going to do, which obviously makes you weaker on other areas of the court. So when you swing it back or you get, get the ball moving, it allows lanes to open up passes to open up a little bit easier. And that's what you saw in this game. I think there, there was a lot of gravity towards Nate Johnson when he was running off screens and they were trying to free him up. Butler was really worried about them. And I think that helped free up some of the other guys and, and enabled them to get some driving lanes going, including Adam Kunkel, like, like you mentioned. So I thought that played out really well for them from that perspective. The other thing about the offense as a whole that I thought went really well is they got almost all of their guys into their spots at different times. Like everybody had an opportunity in this one to do what they were good at. And it seemed like whether it was a set play ran for them or it was just in the flow of their their offense, this game really worked out from a standpoint of they had a lot of variety. They, they were running a lot of different things for different guys at different times, and it all seemed to be working. I mean, there was just a lot of different actions. It seems like a lot of times you get into a game and it feels like it gets really repetitive and they're running the same stuff over and over. And this isn't a Xavier thing. This is for all teams, but you just see a lot of the same actions, a lot of like high ball screens, if that's what's working or whatever. In this game, it was different. Like you saw various alignments, various sets, even when they were in their flow game, there was just a lot of different things that they were hitting on that, that worked well. They scored on 63% of their possessions in this game. So I think it just goes to show you that they were really pretty sharp on offense, despite the layoff. Yeah. And the other thing, too, with the offense is Jack Nunji only has eight points. DeWan only has two. Colby Jones only has seven. I think going into the game, we may have expected Jack Nunji to have a bigger point total just because of the matchup down in the post. And he goes out there and he has eight points. And he didn't have to really dominate in the post again because the shooting was so good. Yeah, I mean, I thought that was big that they were that they didn't have to rely on Jack Nunji to bail them out of this game, even though they got beat up a little inside and Bryce Golden predictably had a, a very good game against them. You know, they were able to win without Jack dominating or really having to control the paint too much. He had some moments that were pretty good in there, but overall, it was not one of his better performances, I would say. You know, one thing I, I realized during the second half was I thought this felt a little bit like one of those Trayvon and JP teams the way they got into trading baskets. It was almost like Xavier was kind of lulling Butler into just come on, come out here and play our game. Let's get running up and down here and not play a lot of defense. Let's just get into trading. Ba- that was the tra- <laughs> Trayvon and JP trick all the time, right? Like they never wanted to get stops. It was always like, let's just get this team into our style of game. And at some point we'll go on a big run and just beat them, you know? And like, yeah. that was this game, kind of, this team, the Xavier team hasn't been doing that as much. They've been better defensively for the most part, but in this game, it was like they got rolling on offense. And in the second half, they were just like, all right, come on, Butler. You like to slow this down and grind it out and make it ugly. Not tonight. Like, let's go ahead and trade baskets again, getting run up and down the court a little bit. And even though it was still a pretty slow game in terms of only what, like 63 possessions or something like that, it still just had that feel of like, and eh, no one's going to play defense today. Let's just trade baskets and that'll work out best for us. Well, and to put it in perspective, the over-under was 131, and they scored 159 points. <laughs> it was not at all the game I was expecting. I mean, I, it, it did not look like the Butler style of basketball that we've come to know the last two seasons. And um, I give Xavier some credit for that because Xavier, w- without pushing the pace a ton, I mean, they didn't run up and down the court. Now, granted, in the first half, it felt like Xavier was able to get out and run a little bit more. Second half, it seemed like they were intentionally slowing it down. And then, and at the end of the game, of course, you're – trying to burn some clock and and run some more time off the clock. So uh, it could have been a higher possession game than it ended up. But I thought just the, again, the sort of style of let's just trade baskets. You get in the flow of that. You you like the, doesn't that feel good? It feels good to score every time down. Just make sure you're letting us do the same thing on the other end type of deal. I was like Trayvon and JP's teams were great at that. Like they just made everyone kind of get lulled into that of, of we're just going to go out here and play like it's an exhibition game and score a bunch because we're better that, at that than you are. This team probably shouldn't be trying to play that way all the time, but it worked in this game, and it was kind of funny to watch. I also think what we were alluding to before, where it's like you had, what was it, six different guys who had a three-pointer in this game, and you scored so easily, and you've seen multiple guys who can step up at any different time, and you've got a guy like Nate Johnson who can light it up and is so consistent shooting. You've got a guy like Kunkel who has had, what, he had seven threes in that Ferris State game earlier this year. He had four threes in this one. Like, he's clearly proven that he can get hot and, and carry your offense. How does 
How does a second half like Villanova ever happen with a team like this? How can you go through an entire half where you go over 14 from three and you just can't possibly score and everything goes like that has happened, not just in the second half of Villanova. It's happened a couple different times the last two years. And again, I think this team is, is better for a few different reasons than last year's team. But for the most part, it's a lot of the same guys. Where do those halves come from? They do not make sense with a team like this. I don't think it's like it was, a, a it was the right. It was the, it was the right basket at Villanova. Yeah, it had to that. It had to be, but it's happened at other times too, right? Like we have just seen this team go insanely cold and get like, there should not be six or seven minute stretches where this team doesn't score or this team can't make a field goal. That, that doesn't make sense with this group. I can't explain that and why that occasionally happens or, or what's going on there. Yeah, I'm with you because there are just so many weapons. There are just so many ways that this team can score. It's not like this team only shoots threes and if they're not shooting threes and they go to one guy and they go to another guy and then they go to another guy and nobody's hitting threes like in the second half you can dish it down low you can get jack nunji involved you can try and mix things up to where you're working through the post you can try and kick out you can you know so many different ways that this team can score that like you said there really shouldn't be any reason where you're going on some kind of a Kansas type run against Oklahoma state the other day. I don't know if you saw that, but yeah. Kansas had 29 points with over nine and eight, like nine and a half minutes left in the first half and then finished with 29 points at the end of the first half. And that, that shouldn't happen to a team like Xavier, you know, like what we saw in the second half against Villanova. Um, I, I have one question for you about Butler, but before I ask that uh, Colby Jones, did you have anything noteworthy anything with his performance on Friday? I, I think my thing with Colby is that I, I part of the beauty of Colby is that he doesn't need the ball a lot to, to be himself and to have an impact on the game. And you don't have to run offense through him, but at the same time, doesn't it feel like Colby needs the ball a little bit more, or he needs a little bit more opportunity to do his thing on like, he just feels like he's too talented and too good to, to not get him a little bit more involved at times. Like it feels like there's some halves where he only takes one or two shots. And I, I can't put exactly my finger on like what they should be doing differently or how he should be used differently, but it just feels like at this level in the NBA, that's going to be his role, right? Like if he makes it to the league, the beauty of him is going to be, you never have to throw him the ball. He does all the other things. Well, he's like a, the uh, Supreme role player, but at this level, he's talented enough that, He's he should end up being a superstar at some point in his career, I think, in college. And he's just not scoring enough and not getting enough opportunities offensively to really do that. I'm not blaming anyone else for that. I think it's it's part him and maybe part that other guys need to start forcing the issue a little bit more and making sure they're they're seeking him out on the offensive end. And great. I mean, he didn't like he was one for four from inside the arc in this game. So it wasn't like he was setting the world on fire and like they should have been feeding him or anything. But I, I just get that feeling, you know, you guys for seven points and seven rebounds in 27 minutes, he's all over the place. He's flying all over the court on both ends. I don't know. I just think he can be more of a matchup problem than sometimes he's enabled to be. And I think it's part of, like you said, a lack of aggressiveness, too. I feel like sometimes he's always looking first to other guys, which in a teammate is a great trait to have. You're certainly not knocking somebody that's putting the other guys first. But when you're as talented as he is and can go off to score as many points as he can, at some point you can think for, you know, your own benefit, your own self, your own good to maybe try and be a little more aggressive or uh, take a risk here and there to take some kind of a shot that maybe you're thinking, oh, do I take this? Do I not? And in a game against Butler like that, maybe that is the kind of opportunity where you can look for that because you certainly don't want to force anything against a team like Villanova. I think that's really well said, Paul. To me, it, that's probably who it's on the most is it's on Colby's mindset to change and understand that you're not that high schooler who's coming to into his own who just has to do all the dirty work. It's great that you do all that stuff, keep doing all of it. But like, also, you have a chance to be the best player on this team. You have the chance to be a first team all biggies type player. You've got to start playing a little bit more like that in your own mindset. You got to take a little more. Uh, onus all yourself in the offensive end to, to be a scorer and be a guy that they play through a little bit more. So again, it's not, it's not really a knock on anyone. It's just something that I noticed, especially in this game where it's, it feels like at times he just fades 
a little bit too much. And there's they, they go too long stretches without Colby getting any type of looks or really even touching the ball a whole lot on offense. So the rebounding, the defense, all that stuff is great. But I would like to see him become a little bit more involved. And it probably starts with him changing his mindset a little bit. Yeah, no doubt. Um, now, switching gears a little bit, I had one thing I want to ask you about Butler, and it's kind of a broad thing. We don't have to go on about it too much because we still got to talk about Villanova. But we're in year five of Laval Jordan. He's got his guys, and they are 121st on Ken Palm. They finished last year 120th. Their best year under Laval Jordan, the NCAA tournament gets canceled. They've made the NCAA tournament one time under him, and it was back in 18. They were a 10 seed, and they lost in the second round at Purdue by three. There is nothing, if I am a Butler fan right now, and you're looking at Aaron Thompson, sure, you're looking at Bryce Golden, sure, or, you know, NZ, maybe. What, if I'm a Butler fan, Rick, am I inspired about right now in my program? Anything? Uh, I mean, I kind of like the young guy, Jaden Taylor, you know, Jaden Taylor, Simus, Lukosius, those two guys and being younger players looked pretty good. I mean, I I think there is some talent there in the younger ranks, but the biggest issue that Butler has is talent. They just haven't put this, this roster has experience on it. It has guys that know how to play. It has some high IQ guys. Uh, Jair Bolden is a really good shooter. It's got some size. Like I think Bryce Golden is a very solid post player. NZ is as a high IQ guy, they just lack any top end talent. All of these guys are like good. If they're your third, fourth, fifth options, they don't have a number one or a number two option really on this team offensively. That's, that's the biggest thing I see. And yeah, you can certainly put that on the coaching staff because it's their job to bring in the talent and they just haven't done enough of that at the same time. Look, Butler flew through this, process of elevating their program from horizon league which i see a lot of to big east which i see a lot of and let me tell you that's a big freaking jump man like a massive massive jump and i'm not just talking about the play on the court i'm talking about all that that entails the the money the crowds the facilities how much you're spending on your program all that stuff matters especially when it comes to recruiting And Butler has had to try to make that jump in an amount of time that doesn't really make sense and an amount of time that financially they probably just weren't really ready for. So I think they're having to play a lot of catch up. You know, Brad Stevens got them there unexpectedly. They had the residual talent come in and off of, I want to be a part of that. The the Brad Stevens aura and the team that went to the two national championship games. That was a, a big freaking deal to be a part of that at the time. Okay. Some of that's worn off now. Now you're just Laval Jordan's big uh, Butler team in the Big East, and you're spending like the least amount out of any school in the conference, and you're trying to play catch up. So I think that's where you're at. I don't know if it's necessarily Laval Jordan's fault, um, but certainly he's in a tough spot right now in terms of what they've done, where their roster is at. And I don't know that it's going to be a whole lot easier for him or anyone else going forward. Uh, it's just something Butler's going to have to work through. And it's probably going to take them some time because as much as it sucks to say, a lot of this does have to do with how much you're investing in your program. And I'm not saying you can't overachieve. Certainly Xavier's done that. They don't spend the same as like the top 30 programs in the country or 40 programs in the country probably. But over the time, they've really built up how much they're willing to spend. And part of what made Xavier go from the MCC to the A-10 to the Big East was their willingness to spend on their program and get to this point. So I think that's kind of the transition that you're seeing take place at Butler. And it can be a painful process, especially when you get to the big leagues before you're quite ready. Yeah. If you look at back and somebody made this point a couple of years ago, and I think it is an interesting point to where Evansville was and Xavier was back in the same conference to where Evansville is now to where Xavier is now and the process that it's taken to get there and to put these programs to where they are and Evansville still kind of where they are in in the Missouri Valley and Xavier, obviously the top echelon now of the big East, like this is a program in Xavier that is to, and I don't need to hammer this home. Every single person listening to this knows this, but to put into perspective, the process that it has taken Xavier to get to where they are consistent success winning the a10 over and over and over to prove 
what kind of a team you were to be able to elevate yourself to the big East to then now, you know, at Butler, like you said, where Brad Stevens has all this success, then Chris Holtman comes in and does a fantastic job. And then Laval Jordan gets elevated as their guy out of their program. And now all of a sudden in the last couple of years, you have regressed to a point where there's not a whole lot of promise right now or for the foreseeable future when you're in year five of Laval Jordan and you're 120, like this is statistically the worst team he's had and it's in year five. And you look at how they played the other night against Xavier. I, a lot of people made the point and I would agree. Butler may have played one of their better games of the year offensively and they lost by 15 points. They got blown out. And if you're going to do that at home, it's going to create apathy in the fan base. You're going to lose dollars. And sure, it was a it was a probably a sold out crowd or close to it on a Friday night against a rival. But a lot of that crowd was Xavier. And you know, I I was talking to my mom about it. She was watching the game and and she was asking me what it was like and going back and forth. And she goes, "Man, Paul, it, watching it on TV, it felt like watching a Cubs Reds game at Great American Ballpark. Like." it felt like the Cubs fans at, at great Americans. She goes, that just what it felt like and what it sounded like. And I was like, yeah, it's, it's a great point. Cause that's certainly a, a great uh, analogy to it. So just the way that, that Butler is kind of trending right now, we don't need to put them in the ground, but I just think it is worth talking about when it's a team right up the road that you could say is a pretty similar school to Xavier and they are trending down for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Chris Holtman was a really good coach, too, to go to follow up Brad Stevens with. So that that certainly plays a role in it. I'm not trying to absolve Laval Jordan and all of this. Like, he is clearly not the same coach that Brad Stevens was or Chris Holtman, uh, but he's also early in his career, too. You know, I'm not I'm not ready to write him off entirely, but I don't know how much string left he has at Butler. It's uh, it's yeah. getting to the point where he's either going to have to figure something out if they continue to give him the chance going forward after this year or it's uh, or it's going to get rough for him really quickly. Yep. So now let's turn the page to Wednesday night. Villanova coming to the Cintas Center. Uh, it'll be the first top 20 matchup at Cintas since the last time Xavier and Villanova were ranked in the top five together. The only time that they were ranked in the top five together. Uh, that was when Xavier was number four. Villanova was number three back in 2018. Uh, retire 52. Also a great little tweet here. Only the fifth matchup all time at Cintas with both teams ranked in the top 20 and Villanova was three of those. So this is setting up to be a fun one. Xavier comes into today, a little Monday rankings update, AP poll, they're 17, the net, they're 18, Ken Palm, they're 20, uh, Oklahoma state did pick up a nice win the other day to kind of cushion their net ranking a little bit. And I say that because Oklahoma State was teetering around 74, 75 to where it would drop off of a quad one win. They bumped up about 20 spots like in the last two nights. So have a little bit more of a, a cushion and a bubble there. But now Xavier turns their attention back to a Villanova team that they just played two games ago, but it was three weeks ago by the time this game was <laughs> played. Um, Rick, we saw how they played in the first half. We saw how they played in the second half. So if you're Xavier at home, I think a lot of people are probably expecting Xavier to win this game. Uh, what are you expecting out of Xavier in 48 hours? I think it's hard to pick against Xavier in this matchup after seeing the first game between these teams. Xavier looked like the more talented team. It looked like the matchups were pretty favorable for them. Yes, Villanova took over late in that game. And yes, Xavier folded down the stretch and the turnovers were Awful and the over 14 from three was almost impossible. But that's the good news. Like, I don't know how you replicate that over 14 at the Centos Center. I don't think you can. So I think it plays out more of an average of those two halves than the extreme one way or the other. I don't think Xavier builds the big lead in the first half. And I don't think they just absolutely crumble in the second half of this game. I think it's a much more even game uh, between the two halves. But yeah, I think you have to like Xavier's chances in this one after seeing the way that first game played out. It obviously, Zach Fremantle has been an issue. Ball screen defense has been an issue. Um, and some communication off the ball in the Butler game where some of the quick hitters Butler was running were, were they were getting easy baskets on because Xavier just wasn't communicating very well on and off the ball. They've got to sure up some of that stuff, but I don't see any reason why they shouldn't have a good chance to win this game at home against Villanova. 
Yeah, and the other thing too is Xavier. It was a one possession game at the under four timeout. Like they ended up losing that game by thirteen points at Villanova, but it's a one possession game where you're thinking, okay, it could go either way, and then Villanova closes out the game as strong as they did to really in the end, if you're looking at the box score, blow Xavier out. But that was not how the game was played. Xavier just didn't make shots in the second half. And if you're at home in front of a crowd, like what we're expecting on Wednesday night, you're hoping that you don't let that kind of a run happen. You're hoping that some of those shots, Rick might fall. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, again, it's almost impossible to play the way that they did in the second half at Finner and Pavilion. The other guy that for Villanova that I think you have to do a better job against is Eric Dixon. And obviously we've talked about Xavier's trouble defending in the post and not offering enough resistance, but Eric Dixon can't be a guy that's scoring 14 to 20 points against you and controlling the glass. Like he's got to be an afterthought in this Villanova offense. The guards are a problem. All of them were tough for Xavier to match up with Gillespie Moore. Caleb Daniels, all those guys gave them trouble, and they give a lot of people trouble. All those guys can be tough to match up with. They're strong. They're physical guards. They do their whole pump fake and play off of two feet and pivot and the paint type stuff. So I get all that, but Eric Dixon can't be the guy that's hurting you, and he was scoring with ease in the first half of that that first matchup between these two teams. So that's one area where Xavier's got to be better. Yeah, I tweeted it the other night when they were playing Creighton. I was watching that game and Villanova blew Creighton. They won by 34 points, 75 to 41. Uh, But we're in 2022 and these players are still flying out and biting on all of these Villanova shot fakes like it's the first time they've ever seen it. I'm like, what are we doing here? And I understand. Now, here's my question, Rick, looking at that. Is there something in the flow of the offense and the way that they're passing the ball around that it causes you to overreact and fly out on that? Is that a lack of discipline in the players? Is it a combination of the both? But what is it about that such a simple little skill and technique that makes it so effective for that team year after year? Yeah, first of all, good tweet. I enjoyed that tweet. I think I favorited it. If not, <laughs> I, I laughed at home when I saw it. Um, That's good. That counts for more. I'd prefer that you laugh, even if you're not going to throw the like. So I did. I thought I thought it was a good tweet. Um, It's very accurate. It's just like, how does this still work? And how is it so effective seemingly every time? Now, I remember back to the first game where I Jerome Hunter bit on one of those pump fakes and fouled somebody. And Paul Scruggs like almost lost his mind on him, was like screaming at him, be like, don't jump. Like, do not jump. We just talked about it for However many days leading up to this game, don't do it, you know, type of deal. And uh, so it is partly disciplined. Like the guys that have been around, they know, they tell everybody, they talk about it, they try to do their best. They still end up falling for them themselves because it's just, for whatever reason, it's almost impossible to do. I think the thing that Villanova does really well that makes it difficult to not fall for those is they move the ball so well. When you're having to slide over into a help position and then recover to your man quickly because the ball's pinging around, You don't get the chance to think, oh, this is probably going to be a pump fake coming up here, right? You're just trying to get back to your man and close out on him quick enough, and they shoot the three so damn well that you got to close out on him. You can't just give him a wide-open three with no high hands and contestant. Shit, that was a pump fake. Now he went by me again. I think that's what happens. It's just like when you move the ball well and you play the right way, you don't give the defense enough time to process it all and think exactly what am I going to do. And there is the other side of this is that Villanova shoots a ton of threes. They shoot the three well, so – Pump fakes work because you're worried about them shooting the three. Either option is pretty bad. A wide open three from them that you don't contest is not a good option. And you flying out at them, jumping on a pump fake, and them going around you is not a good option. So I think that's really the answer there is you're left with two bad options. And uh, it seems like a lot of teams will choose to take the, the latter of the two. <laughs> yeah, Villanova is coming into this on a four-game winning streak right now. Their last loss was to Creighton uh, in, in their opener in the Big East. And they've won every game since Xavier, Seton Hall, Creighton, and DePaul. Xavier played them tough, ended up losing by 13. Seton Hall played them very tough, but Seton Hall was shorthanded in that game. Creighton was, I mean, that was a laugher. Creighton was never in that game. It was never close. I don't know why I watched almost the whole thing, but I did. Uh, Creighton was never in that game, 75 to 41. And then on Saturday, the Demons, I, that ended up being a 15 point game. But for all intents and purposes, DePaul kept that one close for a lot of that game that ended up being 79-64. But if you're just looking at the score and you didn't watch a minute of that game, DePaul was in that game for a long part of it. 
that worked out beautifully for me because I was going over to Lawrenceburg to uh, bet on that first NFL game on Saturday. It started at like 4 p.m. or whatever. So I went and I got out there at the beginning of the second half for this one. So DePaul was winning still by like a point or maybe Villanova had just gotten to the point where they were like closing the gap. But either way, it was, you know, Villa or DePaul had the first half lead. You go in the second half and immediate Vill- Villanova starts coming back. I got it just before they made their big run and took control. So it was like I had Villanova at minus four, I think, or something like that. Minus oh, three and a half. God. Yeah. And I just I knew it was coming. Right. So I just got <laughs> with a minus three and a half on my side. Uh, I got to watch the final like 10 minutes of that game where Villanova just poured it on them and easily ran away to a 15 point win. It was the perfect timing to walk into a live betting situation. <laughs> Can't beat that. When you know the Big East Conference and you know that DePaul is back, that's the type of insight that you're able to get on Vegas, right? Just well, and you would also live line. You'd also seen DePaul, right? Your Norse were up there. Oh yeah, I'm a well. You know, I watch every DePaul game. I'm a big DePaul guy. I watch them on Synergy every chance I get. I like to to break down <laughs> to DePaul tape. So uh, I'm pretty well versed in what's going on with the Blue Demons, and they are indeed back. Which meant I knew exactly what was going to happen in that second half, and it worked out perfectly. Yeah. So coming off of that 15-point win over DePaul, Xavier's going to have uh, a real good chance, I think, to win this game on Wednesday night. I have Xavier winning this game. Rick, what do you have? I ha- I will have them winning. I'll be honest. I haven't gone through like the matchups and done the breakdown again, but I'll be expecting a similar score to what I had for the first game, if, if we're being honest, but I will probably flip the result there and have Xavier winning uh, somewhere in the low 70s. All right. Well, Rick, uh, anything else? Any other news, notes, nuggets, fun, anything before we sign off here? Uh, no, not really. It's still kind of, I wouldn't say quiet on the recruiting front, but we're still kind of in the same holding pattern that we've been in, that I've been updating on the notes. There's the, I would say like, two and a half to three guards that they're really looking at right now. I don't know that uh, all of them are a serious option at this point. Uh, The Zion Cruz thing, I think was a little overblown by some of our national guys. I think they get excited when the big name guys get involved, but I I don't think that's a very realistic scenario, Um, but we'll see. It's not quite over yet. So uh, I'll continue to update that. I think there should be a little bit more news on that front coming in the next week or two, as we talk about visits with some of these guys, Judah Mintz and, Amari Abram, uh, both both of those guys they're trying to get here on campus this month. So we'll have more recruiting nuggets coming up, hopefully this week, as I as I continue to talk to sources inside and outside the program. <laughs> what's uh, what's the North schedule? Are you there on Wednesday? No, we will be in Youngstown. We've got a game on Thursday night, and then we go over to Pittsburgh for Robert Morris on Saturday. And I'll be missing the Bengals game, which is uh, oh lovely. wow, yeah. But so you're missing you're missing Villanova, Creighton, and the Bengals. That's right. The Norse. That's okay. The Norse are there for you. Yep. Well, they pay me, so we'll see. That's a good point. Yep. Well, uh, to everybody that's there on Wednesday, I'll be hosting. Should be a fun night. Uh, looking forward to it. Six thirty FS one. If you're not going to be there, and uh, for Rick, I'm Paul. Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs>